welcome to the third week of our study in the book of Revelation that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus Through Revelation. And today we're going to look at um, who Jesus is, in fact, who John describes Jesus as, which I think is fascinating at the end of chapter one. And then as we even go into chapters two and three, how Jesus describes himself. And then we're going to uh, spend some time digging into the context of the seven churches in Asia Minor and uh, ultimately uh, conclude today with talking about the occasion of the letter. Why was it that uh, this, or the occasion of the book, why was it that this book was written? Uh, what's the point of it? And so again, as I have been the past couple of weeks, I'm joined by two good friends, Dr. David D. Pfizer and Dr. Donald Patrick Harris. Welcome guys to this study again. Thank you. It's good to be back together. It's always great to be here. Well, we're going to begin with um, John's Jesus, and, and that's maybe that's an odd way to talk about it. But it, John paints this portrait of Jesus that is unique um, in all of the New Testament, and uh, and I think that's significant uh, as we dig into trying to understand who uh, Jesus is uh, in the Book of Revelation, guys. It, Revelation chapter one, at, beginning around verse twelve, um, John begins to uh, have this encounter with a voice. He says, "Then he turned, and I see, I see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest." And then he goes on to this really marvelous fantastic description of Jesus. What do you all make of that? Well, this image of Jesus is in many ways, unlike anything we see in the gospels. Um, in some ways, we might even say unique in the whole of the Bible. And what I mean by that is there are, uh, it could be argued there are places in the Old Testament even where we get to see the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, and for whatever reason, what comes to my mind is the one who is like a son of the gods that uh, is seen in the, the furnace with mm. uh, the three Hebrew children that is unlike any any person ever seen. And then, of course, I think, again, the, the closest thing we come to this image of uh, Jesus in Revelation is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he is, uh, the Greek word says, metamorphosed uh, into this incredible image where he's... Uh, the imagery, the wording that John uses makes it almost sound like Jesus's face is giving off light uh, as much as his clothes. So there's nothing like John's image of Jesus in the rest of Scripture. And, and that's neat, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. it? It draws my attention to Paul's beautiful Christological passage in Philippians 2 when mm -hmm. he talks about 
um, this, the form, that Jesus takes the form of a human, the form of a servant. And it, you almost get this idea that, um, you know, as you refer to in the Old Testament, that there was a form of Christ in the Old Testament. And then here in Revelation, it seems as if we're seeing a form uh, of Jesus that John is portraying mm -hmm. here. Don, do you have some thoughts? My thoughts went to Daniel 7 and his vision of the Ancient of Days. Mm -hmm. And it reads like this. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat, whereas in Revelation he's already seated. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Uh, and it goes on through verse 10. but that is what came to my mind initially. Well, one of the interesting things about Revelation chapter one and John's description of Jesus is that we meet this description again in each of the seven letters to the seven churches. Um, it's as if Jesus is reaffirming John's vision that this is in fact Jesus who is writing to these churches. Now, I, I love, uh, of course, John's response here in chapter one, because I, I mean, and to think about this in 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 the entire context of John's uh, uh, relationship with Jesus. I mean, he was with Jesus for three years, the beloved disciple. Um, he's the one that's on the breast of Christ at the supper. Um, he's the one who's given care of Jesus's mother. Uh, you just have this picture that. Um, besides him being called the son of thunder, that uh, there is a special relationship between Jesus and John. Um, not necessarily unique, but certainly special. And then when we come to Revelation chapter one, when John encounters the, the resurrected, ascended, and seated Christ, he is in awe of what he sees. And he records that he fell down as if dead. Um, boy, what an amazing experience that, that must have been. When we consider the fact that the, the typical re human reaction to seeing an angel or a, a heavenly being up close and personal is to, to fall over as if dead, to, to, you know, in the, the words of Isaiah to declare, woe is me. Um, how much more so seeing the resurrected, ascended, uh, dare I say it, victorious Christ mm. up close and personal. Uh, to know he's speaking to you and calling you to do something. Uh, that that I don't think we can truly appreciate what that must have been like for John, even though this was just a vision. Um, it, it must have been very palpable. And then the, the text uh, in chapter one uh, records that uh, Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. And I mean, I just love that image there of Jesus stretching out his hand to John and telling him to fear not. It, it must have... Uh, 
it must have reminded him of his experience with Jesus, um, that he is the great I am, that uh, he has called us not to fear. Uh, that we should absolutely be in awe of Jesus, but to know that he is with us and that he reaches out to touch us uh, brings us great comfort, as it did John in, in this account. It seems as though John didn't recognize who he was. It was so glorious that he had to be told. And even though he knew Jesus intimately in this setting, he's just really overwhelmed. And the, and the way that Jesus tells John, you know, it's, it's verbal, um, it's, but it's also physical. He lays his hand on him. And uh, and he says to John, and I, I I don't know what about that, but it just seems really cool to think of Jesus stretching out his hand and and speaking to John. And it was then that John recognizes uh, who Jesus is. I think there's something to that, though. I mean, yes, this is a vision, but it speaks to how God interacts with the whole of who we are. You know, our relationship with the Lord is not merely a spiritual relationship um, like the Gnostics and a lot of uh, contemporary New Age type beliefs view. Um, in fact, that he would reach out and touch John is very... Uh, reminiscent of how he would minister to people and during his earthly ministry mm. uh, touch human touch is an an incredible affectionate way to communicate to someone and you know we as we'll see as we get deeper and deeper into revelation the the judgments are very physical. Um, mm. It's not a, not merely a spiritual judgment that Christ will bring. The judgments begin well before Christ returns. And here we're seeing just the opposite, a, a reaching out and physically putting the hand on John as a sign of reassurance, as a sign, um, don't fear. <laughs> You know, I, I am he who is the first and the last. Uh, what a powerful way to be raised back up to your feet or something. I mean, didn't necessarily dispel the awe, but it certainly uh, reassured him on some level. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and such a reassurance, not only for John. But for the churches, too, as I mentioned earlier, um, when Jesus introduces himself, he, he writes these seven letters to the seven churches. And in each letter, it begins with a description of who he is. So, for example, in uh, the, chapter two, verse one to the church in Ephesus, he says that the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's drawing out of that description, that picture, that or that vision that John has just seen of Jesus and saying that this is who I am. That, that, that same Jesus 
that John is fearful of and all of that the same Jesus who reached out and laid his hand on John and told him not to fear is the Jesus that is walking alongside of you, the church, um, and, and bringing you this uh, really very pastoral epistle. Um, boy, I, I just think that the church must have sensed a, a great uh, uh, re- relief, perhaps in, in one sense, but uh, a great sense of um, promise, too, that Jesus is the one who said that he would build his church, and he's mm-hmm. holding true to that promise. So as we get into the seven churches, let's talk a bit about their situation um, as we read through this. And we've had some interaction on this um, uh, during the course of the day today together. Uh, But what are some of the key points that you guys see that these seven churches are uh, dealing with in their context of Asia Minor? One of the first things to remember is that each of these churches has a place before the Lord in his heavenly throne room. Um, That, I think, is an easy detail to kind of read past because it kind of happens early on in that uh, second or first chapter. But the fact that they are there in his presence is, in a sense, what precipitates his concern, his care, and his frustration with at least five of the seven churches. Yeah, a great point. I mean, so John John says that this one that he hears the voice of is the one that's walking among these these lampstands. Uh, that Christ is very present with his church. Uh, what a beautiful picture. I think, too, it's important for us to keep in mind um, that here is where we see the epistolary nature of Revelation, isn't it? Um, these very much are letters uh, addressed to specific churches, uh, written by a specific person. And so we see this epistolary nature as well. I did read something this morning that really challenged my thinking in this area. Um, Of course, we've talked about genre, the epistolary, the prophetic, and the apocalyptic. And uh, the person I was reading is named J. Ramsey Michaels, and he wrote a book entitled Interpreting the Book of Revelation. And he wants to come out very strongly and say that you pretty much have to recognize all three genres, but you also need to be careful when you look at epistolary literature, because he says it sounds strange to have letters within a letter. And my tendency before this discussion was to sort of cut it up and say, well, here's the epistolary section, here's the prophetic section, here's the apocalyptic section. And so he would say, it is a an epistolary, it is a letter written in a prophetic style with apocalyptic elements. Now, is that saying is that saying something different or is that more of the same? But with with his thesis, with that being his position, he said, I think it would be better to look at these so-called letters to the seven churches as oracles, similar to what the prophets wrote when they spoke of the nations or when they spoke specifically to uh, the uh, 
to Israel and Judah to say, this is an oracle to Ephesus, for example, Smyrna, Pergamum, etc. And so, yes, they're letters, but I was challenged to reconsider whether or not these are seven letters within a letter or whether this is an open letter to all and everyone else gets to read the other's mail. I mean, hmm. it, can you imagine the joy and delight at that? I think that's a, you know, my, my answer to your question is yes. I, <laughs> I think there's elements of both to that. And I appreciate you bringing that up because it reminds me that while these letters are so short, and they only make up the second and third chapter, we really need to read the rest of Revelation with these seven letters in mind. Because it's not like, okay, it was just this little paragraph that Jesus meant for this one church, and we can forget about them. Um, everything that comes after these letters is meant for these seven churches. Right. And by extension, the rest of the church, really. Um, but we we really need to use these seven churches as kind of a, a lens through which to read the whole book. So in a sense, um, there are these seven letters that are written within the letter. But at the same time, uh, everything that comes thereafter is absolutely critical for, to help these seven churches follow Christ and and for those you know in the case of Ephesus Ephesus to to regain their first love uh, to know that that love will be rewarded in the end I would say just a strong affirmation to this concept that the church uh, or the the revelation this letter uh is written to historical churches, real people who lived in time, space, and history. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the book must mean as much to them as these letters mean to them. It's, mm -hmm. it's how he's addressing the issues that they're facing, both their mm -hmm. failures and their uh, shining moments as well. Good. So in other words, and this is something that we keep repeating, that the book of Revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to them. Yes, absolutely. And I think if, if there's a fatal flaw in much that passes for contemporary interpretation is that it, it kind of takes Revelation up like a ball and runs with it in any sort of direction. And I, I just... I can't imagine that the first readers, the first recipients, the first hearers of this letter being read would have any recognition of some of what passes for uh, contemporary interpretation. I mean, some of it's right out of science fiction, fantasy type stuff. And I think they, these seven churches should serve for the, the contemporary reader, wh whatever time period the reader is uh, coming from, they are our anchor mm. at this 
while it was not purely for them in its entirety in terms of the meaning of it, you know, we're not talking a preterist uh, interpretation, but it has to have uh, a meaning that is particular to their time, but also has universal meaning for every generation of the church to come thereafter. And uh, they are our anchor. I think they keep us honest in our interpretation. Otherwise, we're going to come up with interpretations that leave them in the dust. Mm -hmm. And uh, that would, in my humble opinion, be doing violence to both the text and to uh, God's intent to that first generation of believers. So, David, would you see then, as we look at these seven churches, that we might fully expect to see something about ourselves in these churches, um, something that's going to help us to understand how we are to move forward um, as we face challenging times? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so on the one hand, we're saying that revelation can't mean to us what it would never have meant to those believers receiving it. But at the same time, um, there is that universal message. And like Don, I don't want to say too much that gets ahead of where we are today, but, um, you know, as maybe a, a little primer for that, it is a word of, of hope and warning for the church in every generation. And, you know, we need to read revelation soberly. Um, I think Don has said before, you know, we, we need to put the newspaper down and stop trying to find Revelation's fulfillment in contemporary events. Uh, however, we also need to read it with an eye towards uh, perhaps the mirror, as it were, uh, looking at ourselves through the lens of Revelation and humbling ourselves. Am I, have I forgotten my first love? Um, mm. Am I compromising my faith in some way, shape, or form for the sake of achievement or comfort in this life? Um, the, the, the statements that the Lord makes to uh, five of the seven churches, at least, really should catch our attention such that we are prayerfully asking the Lord uh, much like David in the Psalms, Lord, reveal to me my heart, show me my heart, and and cleanse me of any unrighteousness so that we can return to our first love. If I may, I would like to rephrase our thesis, uh, Michael, that you stated. It's just slightly different, but I think it brings it out a little bit stronger. That our interpretation of revelation cannot possibly be what it could not have meant to them. Uh, and the key phrase there, or the key word is could not. In an earlier podcast, I had mentioned that I may not know everything that revel the revelation teaches. That is, I may not have the correct interpretation on everything. But I'm quite sure I know many things that it does not teach, <laughs> right? So I don't know if you remember that comment, but I think it ties in that it cannot possibly mean for us what it could not have meant for them. And this gets into some of the wild speculation of 
who are these locusts and who are these various manifestations of dragons and so on. And we, in my time and in the course of my life, I have heard so many things that are just way off the wall. I mean, they're beyond science fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're, they're just off the wall. So we can take some of those things out of the mix and we can say, well, we know it doesn't mean that. Uh, And so if we're, as David said, reading the revelation through, through the newspaper, then we want to be very careful because that might be one of those things that it could not have meant to the first century audience. Good. Well, let's dive a little bit more deeply into these seven churches and look at some of the things that uh, Jesus uh, talks about with them um, in regards to what we might be able to discern uh, related to the cultural circumstances that they're facing. Some of the things are familiar to us because they're not the first time we encounter uh, some of these issues. For example, uh, to the church in Ephesus, uh, that Jesus is commending them for their stance against false apostles. That um, this is perhaps a perennial issue in uh, the early church, as as it is even for our day. Um, we continue to be confronted with the, uh, the, those who would falsely proclaim who Christ is. Um, what are and then there are some issues here that are a little strange to us. Um, for example, uh, the, the Nicolaitans. Who are these guys or gals or what? What is what's a Nicolaitan? That we don't know much about this group of people. Um, in fact, what we do know about them comes from Irenaeus uh, when he writes in the late uh, uh, late second century. He he mentions this group of Nicolaitans and he relates them to the the deacon, uh, presumed deacon, might not have been a deacon, but certainly a, a servant in the church in Acts chapter six uh, by the name Nicholas. And as their tradition at least arrived to Irenaeus, Nicholas, to demonstrate his uh, commitment, fidelity, if you will, to Christ, um, he, he began to envision uh, the, an aspect of that fidelity being abstinence. And uh, to, uh, to, again, demonstrate his, his commitment to the Lord, he gave his wife to other men to have sexual relations with uh, so that he would not have those relations. And that grew into this sect or cult that became known as the Nicolaitans. It's it's interesting, um, again, as we're dealing with these seven churches, to, to remember that Jesus is going to draw imagery that's going to be familiar to the churches, but, the, but it might not be an exact uh, image of what's happening in those churches. And so with the Nicolaitans, for example, um, we virtually know nothing about them. Uh, there's no indication that the Nicolaitans ever reached Asia Minor. But what we do know is that there was a practice of sexually exploiting women in Asia Minor that, uh, that was all over Asia Minor. 
And so it seems as we confront uh, the Nicolaitans in the church in Ephesus, and then again in the church in Pergamum, that what it is that Jesus is addressing is the practice of exploiting women uh, for sexual favors. And he's calling the church to not do that. And of course, he's commending the church in Ephesus that they stood against the work of uh, the Nicolaitans. Well, my observation is not nearly as titillating as that one. So I'll look at etymology. Okay. Um, and I'll say, Boyd, Michael, your uh, story there, it gets people to lean in and listen very hard. But I, I would say that looking at the etymology, Nikos, of course, is the word for overcomer, and Nike Shoes has uh, done a good job of branding that. We, you know, at least their their name, Nike, comes from, uh, you know, it's in the same family of words. But I'm thinking of how the churches wrestled with internal problems, and some of those internal problems definitely had to do with false teaching, and the false teaching was often promulgated by people who wanted to have the power or the preeminence in the church. And so when I read Nicolaitans, I'm thinking of people who love to have the power, people who want to have the dominance over other people. Now, this will speak to pastors for sure, because everyone, uh, most pastors would agree that there's a church boss in every congregation. And yet, I don't think that's what this is speaking to necessarily. I do think it is speaking more than likely to uh, false teachers who wanted to have authority in the church. So was this an organized group? Is it like the one Irenaeus has spoken of that Michael related to us? Is this, or is this something that generally happens in churches and churches have to fight from within? And we know that eventually at least some of these churches are going to have to fight with circumstances without. But that's where I would uh, come down on this question. I think those are solid insights. Uh, it does remind me of what Donald was saying earlier about uh, what we can't necessarily know. <laughs> uh, Revelation doesn't give us enough in and of itself. So we do have to appeal to uh, later generations like Aramaeus to give us some insight. But it is, in a sense, particularly to our uh, contemporary evangelical ears, a little eerie that all the things that that Jesus commends them for, we uphold as as values, right? So what I'm getting at is he he says your toil, your patient endurance, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are found to be false. Uh, you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You're, you've lost, you've abandoned the love you had at first. And uh, it's a good reminder that even our opposition to the Nicolaitans or other false teachers is 
insufficient if we are not if if that's not somehow being motivated by love whether it's love for our lord and savior or love for those who are threatened by such false teachers or even as jesus said himself our love for our enemies because it's not our place to judge our enemies but to turn them over to the lord for him to do with as he would um these are really sobering words uh, i almost wonder if we need to recite them to ourselves every night we go to bed and when we get up in the morning gotta love gotta love gotta love help me lord <laughs> certainly two uh, viewpoints on the nicolaitans uh for sure and i'm sure there are many others who have various viewpoints what's compelling to me in, in regards to irenaeus's uh insight into who these were is that we know that this was a cultural practice in the city of Ephesus to exploit women sexually. Uh, it wasn't temple prostitution. That's not what they're talking about. But but uh, what was going on in Ephesus was the practice of the courtesans who would uh, go in and entertain men in the bath or in the spa and, uh, and would uh, teach them. Actually, these men would become fascinated with their teaching. Uh, we have ancient records of uh, these kinds of conversations that women or the men would say that these women are more fascinating and intelligent than Socrates, for example. Yes. Um, and so there was a real uh, desire on the part of men to be entertained by these women. And often the descriptions that we have of these courtesans would be that they would dress scantily. Uh, often they would exchange sexual favors and would entertain these men. Um, I've put forward uh, in, a, in a different place that this was the issue that Paul was addressing in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 with his instructions for women to not teach. Uh, this was something that was happening in the culture. So those kinds of things, when I think about a text meaning first what it meant to them before it could mean something for us, I have to look at those kinds of cultural things that are going on that we know about, not necessarily from scripture itself, but from other sources that are uh, uh, contemporary with uh, scripture. And so we have uh, well-documented sources of the practices of the courtesans in, in the city of Ephesus and in Asia Minor in general. Don, other thoughts on, on uh, the Nicolaitans that you'd like to share? Uh, maybe just a couple, uh, and I'll try to keep it brief. Would the identification of those in verse 2 who call themselves apostles and are not and found to be false, would this be the same group who are the Nicolaitans? I, I think a case can be made for that. I don't know if they're uh, separate or the same, but that's probably the direction I would go. And in my reading, I didn't do this as though I was going to preach on it and need to explain every single element of every verse. The, the second thing is, yes, it's very interesting to hear about the courtesans and what was happening uh, there culturally in Asia Minor. My question would be, was that, is that what was happening in the church here at Ephesus? Now, you've made that connection in some of your prior study and writing um, but I don't know if that's the case that it was going on inside the church. 
obviously something was happening in Ephesus that would cause Paul to uh, issue a prohibition of some sort and to bring that to an end. Uh, so maybe we see Paul and John here uh, team, you know, tag teaming, so to speak, uh, on this mm -hmm. subject, but I'm not sure. Yeah, what I love about uh, this letter from Jesus to the church in Ephesus is that it demonstrates that the church was in many ways successful. It, it stood against the false apostles yeah. um, and Jesus commends them for it. They stood against the work of the Nicolaitans or th those practices that were uh, similar to the Nicolaitans. Right. And they were successful at standing against that and Jesus commends them. But as David uh, alluded to, the one thing that he had against them was that they abandoned, and this is interesting, they abandoned the works. They abandoned the works of their first love. They didn't abandon their first love. They abandoned the works of their first love. And I find that uh, interesting as well. Right. And just one other note here in verse 7, uh, and he does this with each of the churches by concluding and saying, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Mm. So this is not, I mean, yes, it is a message for Ephesus. I'm certainly not denying that. But again, this gets to this circular letter idea that he wants everyone to learn from what's happened, both good, bad, and ugly, in each individual church. Mm -hmm. Great insight. One of the other interesting um, cultural issues that we confront in these churches, we find in the city of, of uh, Smyrna. Um, it, we meet this church who is struggling in poverty, Jesus says, um, that they're being in some way slandered by uh, the people who falsely call themselves Jews. And then he makes mention of this interesting uh, Location, perhaps, uh, a place called the Synagogue of Satan. Let's hear your thoughts on the Synagogue of Satan. Well, is it a one-size-fits-all answer? I don't know. But uh, in one sense, it could refer to uh, the synagogue that is was there in Smyrna where the church was experiencing, they were persecuting the church there. Um, again, I don't know that uh, dating necessarily impacts that or not, but um, it could also be kind of a, a metaphor for a group that just was, uh, well, I guess we would view them as somewhat satanic, a, a, a pagan group that was vehemently opposed to the, the church. But uh, the fact that we read in verse nine there that there's this connection, those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, I think lends itself to the reading that uh, this was a, a local synagogue or a local group of Jewish folk who were actively uh, involved in the church's persecution. Uh, whether they were trying to ingratiate themselves to the local Roman authorities or were taking it on themselves to try to 
shut down that local church or group of house churches. We don't have enough in the text itself, but I think that's a, a, a reasonable. Hmm. Yeah, good, good. Well, here, I came across a book um, recently, on, actually, they talk about it as a source book for synagogues in uh, up to the year 200. And uh, as near as they can tell, they try to document all of the sources um, that make reference to a synagogue in the Roman Empire. And, uh, and there are two uh, references in, well, there are several references, of course, to the seven churches. Uh, but two of them are really striking because the churches or the synagogue, or I should say the city of Smyrna only has one historical reference to synagogue. Um, in all of the literature, there's no archaeological um, uh, evidence and there's no uh, uh, inscriptions about a synagogue in, in uh, the city of Smyrna, except for what is written here in the book of Revelation. It's the only place that we have any acknowledgement of the use of the word synagogue uh, in relationship to Smyrna. And I found that very interesting. I think, you know, not to be melodramatic or anything, but uh, one might wonder if uh, it was given the epithet of synagogue of Satan, if if God removed that place, <laughs> you know, short of archaeological digging, uh, their memory has been removed from from history of sorts because they were they had turned from being his people to persecuting his people. One might wonder. One, yeah, sure, absolutely. Well, and another interesting uh, note on even the use of the word synagogue, it, it has an ancient use. We can date it back to Pythagoras, actually, mm -hmm. uh, because it was used in reference to his places of meeting. Uh, mm -hmm. They would gather together in a synagogue uh, yeah. or a place of meeting. Um, and so it has a long ancient use. Uh, some have suggested that that Jews would uh, prefer house of prayer to synagogue, as we see in Philo. And so I, I don't want to make a, a lot about uh, the word, but it is interesting to me that um, it, there's very little literary uh, or archaeological evidence placing a synagogue in Smyrna. Um, it, there certainly could have been Jews there, and this seems to give reference to that. Um, and so it makes me wonder if this could have been something other than what we have traditionally thought of as a synagogue, uh, since it's being connected with Satan. Um, it, was this some uh, other type of gathering, uh, some other type of a, assembly um, besides what we would commonly associate with the Jews? Another thing comes to my mind, perhaps a different way of putting this story together or, or trying to make sense of the story, is it definitely seems that the term or the phrase synagogue of Satan is pejorative. You know, this, this is not a compliment. And knowing that there was a great deal of syncretism, and there's uh, in that time, and I would say, I don't know that syncretism has diminished in our day at all, but, um, and from that, we might get a lesson and say, you know, this is the sort of things that people do. 
you know, we know that there are those who say they are Jews and are not, you know, there are true Jews, as Paul says, but we now call them Christians. They were first called Christians at Antioch, and they refer to their assemblies as the ecclesia, which is what we commonly translate as church. So I'm not, I would be more likely to think that this is some sort of uh, progressive group of Jews who are moving away from Judaism, but are perverting the gospel, and that this is some form of syncretism between the Jewish order and the new Christian Christians who have come about. Hmm. Um, but I think this is now speculation on my part, and we don't know for sure. But we do know the struggle is that uh, it says that there was slander of those who say they are Jews. And I would think that would be true Jews, but they're not true Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan. And we know that in Galatians and other places, we have those who are uh, known as, uh, uh, remind me of the term, the Galatians, they, they were the legalists. They were the ones who... Judaizers. Yeah, the Judaizers who who stuck to the law, but they were also people who would, in a moment, slander the church and get them in trouble with the civil authorities. I'm reminded of what happened in Acts with Simon the sorcerer, who wanted the power and thought he could pay for it, uh, but couldn't get it. So very very early along in the history of the church, we have these accretions and these syncretistic practices. And this might, this might be just taken to this level. And now it's become an issue again within the church. And we meet this group twice, don't we? We meet them again in Philadelphia. Um, Jesus makes reference to the synagogue of, of Satan. He makes one other reference to the seat of Satan. Do you guys see this as the same uh, or something different? Uh, and this taking place, the seat of Satan uh, being in Pergamum. Yeah. I think this is, is different. Um, you know, I think there are two reasonable uh, ways to interpret this. One is that it was uh, kind of an imperial seat, uh, a strong presence of Roman imperial authority. Uh, another one would be that it was a very strong uh, pagan temple or other such associated place. I currently probably lean towards the, the Roman the idea of it being associated with Roman authority, uh, mainly because I would think that if it if it were referring to something to do with a pagan temple, that Ephesus would actually be the the prime location for such a thing, because that was the center of the worship of Artemis of the Ephesians, as we read in Acts. Uh, Paul certainly ran into those folks and had quite a bit of trouble with them. They uh, drove him out. Uh, but 
what other evidence is there? Yeah, you know, Pergamum was the was the central location of the worship of the god Asclepius. Mm-hmm. And it was very well known that uh, those who would study medicine would actually go to Pergamum to do their study uh, in the temple of, of Asclepius or in the, in the school there. And of course, we know that the symbol of Asclepius is the serpent. Yes. And I, I've wondered if that might be uh, it's part of the reference here, that the seat of Satan or Satan's throne. Um, uh, could refer to something connected with the worship of Asclepius. And maybe even making reference to uh, the Genesis uh, account of the serpent. It certainly could. I mean, uh, the, the imagery of the serpent, as you noted, has from the beginning uh, brought an imagery of opposition to God. Uh, so it, it very well could be that. Um, when I think of opposition to to God, though, you really can't point that, uh, make that point too finely without bringing in Satan. So uh, this isn't just general opposition to the Lord. This would have been uh, a group who truly was uh, going after the church. And as we read in, in chapter two, verse 13, uh, you know, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Uh, the wording there just seems uh, to connect the death of Antipas and other saints with that location um, with Satan, with mm-hmm. Satan's throne. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, whatever was going on in that city, uh, the, the Christians were certainly threatened, mm-hmm. as they were in other cities. The reference, in, even in Smyrna, that uh, they were under threat of imprisonment for uh, their activities. Good. So we so we're getting some of the interesting cultural things here in Asia Minor, and it's a, really a fascinating uh, place and a very diverse place, too. Um, I, I might add. We know that in in this area there are as many as fifty different ethnic groups that make up uh, the different uh, peoples of Asia Minor, and so you can imagine the 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 vast amount of cultural uh, issues that could come into play in such a diverse area. Um, again, with Pergamum, uh, Jesus makes mention that uh, of the teaching of Balaam. What do you make of that in chapter two? Well, once again, this is an Old Testament story and uh, takes us back to the book of Numbers. And this was a, a real false prophet, if you know what I mean. This was a prophet, but he was a false prophet, and he would prophesy for money. And the the, the idea behind this and the whole Old Testament story is enforced compromise, uh, especially of a sexual nature. And 
you know, this ran counter to the command uh, that they were given that they should, you know, never marry into the peoples of the land that they were going to be uh, given. Uh, and so here we have this story being taught or, or referenced. And is this a specific person or a specific group? Or is this a metaphor referring back to the Old Testament reference in Numbers? Again, I would answer yes. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think one of the interesting things in connecting it back to Numbers is that not only was Balaam a false prophet in the sense that he was kind of out for profit, but by God's grace, he somehow had a connection to God. I mean, when Balak came to him or sent representatives to him wanting him to prophesy against Israel, he went and sought the Lord and the Lord spoke to him. So in a sense, the the character or the idea of Balaam showing up here is somebody who has heard from God and refuses to obey what God is saying, but is constantly out for profit. And, you know, he, at least in the person of Balaam in, in uh, numbers, he could not violate what God said, but he still would, you know, he ended up telling Balak, well, this is how you can ruin Israel. Just send your, your prettiest daughters out and that, that'll work just fine. Um, so this is somebody or a group who know the truth and refuse to bring themselves under the authority of the truth or they're using the truth for profit in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Well, and Don made reference to this earlier that um, we do see forms of syncretism even mm -hmm. in the churches, in the early church. And here is one of those, that uh, there are people inside the church that are doing these things. Um, and they probably think that this is a, a part of the way in which uh, they express their worship in, in some way. And, and um, so it's a, it's a stark warning that Jesus has given to the church to be different. It, the church is not like this. Uh, the church is different than, um, than what's described in terms of uh, sacrificing food to idols and practicing sexual immorality. Absolutely. And it seems clear that the Old Testament situation in Numbers and the situation in the church in Pergamum are analogous. That is the same type of thing that was happening in Numbers is happening in Pergamum. And this gets to the question of syncretism and accommodation and the need, the threat to the the need for the church to respond to this threat in a drastic way. In some ways, John is speaking very prophetically in the sense of forthrightly, and he's trying to scare scare them. Uh, he's trying to put the fear of God in them, I would say. All right, so Pergamum, um, I wish we knew who Antipas was. Uh, I don't know that we have any information on who this dear saint was who lost his life for his faithful witness. Um, 
Well, the good and, news is his name's in the Lamb's Book of Life. <laughs> that's right. We, we, and we will need him. Someday. Won't we? Okay. So we have a reference to Balaam and then uh, to the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 18. There's a reference to Jezebel. Again, another Old Testament reference. What do you guys make of that? Well, this is just another reminder of how marinated in the Old Testament the book of Revelation is. Uh, Yet again, another illusion or image that's drawn out to not just communicate, I I don't think, to communicate merely um, someone who's problematic, but who was a particular enemy of God, and in this case, uh, the the pagan queen uh, married to Ahab, and you know she was one of the greatest enemies of God's people for her time. Uh, she wanted to kill Elijah after he had the prophets of Baal put to death. Um, she practiced all sorts of. Uh, wickedness and sexual immorality in her day. And here uh, the Lord is connecting her back to this uh, sexual immorality. And she must have been a person in the church. She's not just an outsider who has uh, had great sway, but Jesus gave her time to repent and she refused. And so he will throw her onto a sickbed. Kind of an interesting warning. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the thought just ran through my head uh, that for many of the pastors who might be listening uh, to to think, boy, if you think your church had problems or has problems, just look at these churches. That's right. Those are some issues, aren't they? Uh, Sexual immorality, sacrificing food to idols, uh, you know, these false worship practices that have crept into the lives of the believers in these churches. Um, It's just really uh, amazing to see um, how susceptible we are to deviate from our uh, proper focus. It's not difficult. (laughs) It may have been helpful for me to say this earlier, but Each one of these oracles or letters remind us that you really need to know your Bible. (laughs) You know, it's it's very hard to do some sort of commentary or exposition of these verses when you have to explain every single background and story that goes with it. So, for example, Jezebel, as David gave us a very brief synopsis, to read that story. And then to see it crop up here again, there's an obvious connection. And the obvious connection is once again with compromise, with syncretism. And maybe we need to even define syncretism. That is the blending of true worship with false worship. And this comes about through accommodation and compromise so that we are not unfamiliar with it today. In fact, I have been in many, many evangelical churches all across the country, and I don't think we realize how 
compromised we are, how syncretistic we are. And we've had earlier discussions on evangelicalism and, you know, do I even still want to, do I still want to identify with being an evangelical? And because the meaning has become so broad and then Michael's position, why would we get rid of such a great word that is the heart of the gospel? Uh, But here we're faced with the problem. And it is interesting that idolatry is I can't think of a single reference where idolatry is not coupled with immorality. Mm. The the two go together. And the distinctive nature of the Christian and the Christ follower and the church is to be purity and integrity. Mm -hmm. And so we see this stark contrast here. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. Good. Well, we, we've, we're looking at the cultural issues in uh, the first century Asia Minor, uh, the issues that the churches were struggling with uh, that seem to be fairly clear and almost common uh, among the churches in Asia Minor and perhaps even among uh, the early church in general. And as we move from an understanding of what those cultural uh, issues were, what is it then that you see as the occasion for the book of Revelation? Why is it that John is writing this? Why is it that Jesus is giving this vision to John? What's he trying to get across to the seven churches? Well, I think that in a sense, reading any one of the letters to the seven churches gives us a snapshot of that in the sense that uh, I know you're under assault. Remain faithful and you will be overcomers. You will be blessed. You will be rewarded. Uh, you just need to hold on, trust in the plan, stick with it. And, you know, I am, I am coming, uh, says the Lord. The church was under a great deal of pressure. And I think irrespective of whether we go with an early dating or a later dating, uh, clearly these seven churches were either in danger of compromise, giving in to compromise. They were in danger of doing all the right things, but for not the right reason, you know, they lost their love. Uh, or they were holding fast. They were hanging on, but they, we're ready to give up in the sense that they just were so discouraged and beaten down. Uh, each of these churches in their own way needed to be reminded of who they were and whose they were. And that, you know, and I, and I, I've come to really get bothered by this saying, people like to say, Oh, you're on the wrong side of history. Um, I think we need to remember that history is his story is God's story. And more than that, history will come to an end. And then whose side are you on? Are you on the side of the Lord? Who's on the Lord's side? I I think, you know, again, another Old Testament illusion. I think of Moses um, standing against uh, Korah's rebellion. And, uh, you know, who's on the Lord's side? And everybody comes over to him and uh, they 
put to death, or no, it's not Korah's rebellion. It was following the golden calf. Uh, you know, and those who came over to Moses' side, you know, he said, "Take your swords and and kill all those who gave themselves over to the the worship of the false idol." Uh, are are we those who are on the Lord's side, or are we compromisers? Are we idolaters? Are we immoral people? Are we people of the world? Because only those who hold to the Lord are going to end up being overcomers. My answer to your question is different today than it would have been a week or two ago. Um, I do think it is about remaining faithful in times of hardship, harassment, uh, in times of persecution. But I think as I look at what is the cause of that hardship and harassment, what is the cause of that uh, trial and tribulation, I think it is because comes from two sources. Uh, one is internal, which mm -hmm. we've spoken a lot about today with the syncretism, the compromise, the accommodation. So that's one threat, but it is the earliest threat that seems to destroy the church. And then the other source of the hardship and harassment is external. And th that is the one that I thought was predominant when I came into this study. Mm. But now I think either they're very well balanced or, or I'm slightly leaning to the internal threats as a result of false teaching and accommodation to culture. You know, cultural drift is so dangerous and um, you know, th this, interestingly, this could argue for your earlier date, Michael. Okay. <laughs> Be careful then. Be yeah. Careful. So, uh, but you may not own me, but, um, but I, so I think that if we could say the big idea of the book, the, the big idea is that Christian facing internal and external opposition can hold true to the gospel, and be faithful to the Christ, even unto death. That's great. I love that. The, the internal and the external threats of the church. Um, I mean, that just seems so clear, Don. I agree. Um, the, the, those seven churches were in difficult times. Uh, there, were, there was all kinds of turmoil that they were confronting, um, as you mentioned, the, the threats from the outside. And they were political threats, weren't they? I mean, the empire is growing. The worship of emperors is a real thing. Um, the worship in temples, the, the demands from others to, uh, to sacrifice to other gods and goddesses uh, was prevalent at this time as well. So the pressure that the church was under to, to compromise and individuals were under to compromise was great. Mm -hmm. And um, even, the, even the economics, you're saying this reminds me of, you know, typically people, uh, the, the working class were members of guilds and things. Um, and it wasn't just like a, we think of a modern day union. Uh, you're talking about uh, a lot of social stuff that goes on outside of the workplace. And so to uh, have converted to Christianity, to now be a Christ follower, you could end up 
being cast out of the guild. Uh, who's going to buy your wares? How are you going to get your food? Uh, you're cut off from friends and family. You're, you're, they turn their backs upon you. Uh, so these are very real threats that we don't tend to think about when we read Revelation, but are certainly uh, realistic on the ground challenges that Christians, uh, particularly the Gentile Christians, but even some of the Jewish Christians uh, would have faced. Good. Well, hey, this has been a great discussion. It, what, let me conclude with just a final thought here. You know, I find it interesting as we look at Revelation 2 and 3 that we don't give more attention to um, what might be considered Jesus's assessment criteria for the churches, even for the church today. Uh, we often look at the epistles for that, and rightly so. A lot we can learn about what a healthy church looks like. But certainly here, uh, from Jesus himself, He's teaching us what a healthy church looks like. And as I look at this, there are uh, eight things that just strike me that should mark a healthy church. One is given to every church. Absolutely every church is is, uh, told the exact same thing. And that is that these are churches that listen to the Holy Spirit. He who has ears... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, A healthy church is marked by listening to the Holy Spirit. I think, too, as we've been talking about, a healthy church is one that confronts false teaching. It it nips it in the bud because we know that this uh, can be cancerous in a church. It can be divisive. It can destroy congregations. And so uh, a healthy church confronts false teaching. A healthy church proclaims God's glory. And uh, we'll talk more and more about this as we get deeper into Revelation. But it's, it is it is about God's glory and the proclamation of his glory. It stands for the marginalized, those people that have been exploited. And we see the sexual exploitation of women in uh, a couple of the churches in uh, Revelation 2 and 3. And so the church to be healthy is one that stands against these. They stand up for Uh, the marginalized. They they endure hardship Uh, over and over again. We see that just the difficult time that the church faced in Revelation 2 and 3. They stand in faith. Uh, They they go beyond the work of love and faith and service and endurance. And um, I don't want to say most importantly, but certainly very importantly, the church keeps sound doctrine. It, it, that is so fundamental to who we are um, and, and uh, can ensure that we can stay on track as we keep sound doctrine. And so, guys, any final thoughts as we wrap up our discussion about Revelation 2 and 3? We can hardly imagine how religious the people of this day, of that day and that era were. We don't have the same sense of spirituality, but there was nothing they did that was not connected with spirituality. And David referred to it earlier in commerce, that it was cultural and, you know, their worship, their civil um, relationships, you know, the family, it was all saturated with spirituality. And 
and this sense of analyzing it from the 21st century can become very difficult if we don't keep that in mind, that they were going to worship something and they could not imagine a single aspect of their life without that spiritual component. And these people by nature, by practice, by training for centuries were syncretistic. Mm. And so there's always this lean into syncretism that then is the death knell of the church. Hey, Don, that's a great final word um, for us to keep in mind as we keep uh, on pressing forward through the book of Revelation. And we're looking forward to uh, being with you all next week as we uh, jump into Revelation chapter four and, uh, and continue to discover Jesus through this fantastic book. Thank you.